Thanks for tuning in to the second season of Let the Truth Talk. My name is Tara. And my name is Tandia. This season, we will be talking about some common misconceptions around sexual violence in our society. These misconceptions can prevent victims from speaking out, seeking help, and holding perpetrators responsible for the assault. When dismantling the myths around sexual violence, the facts should always come first. Getting the facts and dismantling these myths are an important step in ending sexual violence and finding ways to best support survivors of sexual violence. Follow along with us as we break down the myths and the truths of sexual violence. We would like to honor and acknowledge the traditional lands of Treaty 7, upon which YWCA Banff is located. We recognize that we have a responsibility to understand our history and the spirit and intent of Treaty 7 so that we can honor the past, be aware of the present, and build a just and caring future. Before we get started, we just wanted to give a listener's note. While we're talking about sexual violence, the topic of sex, sexual assault, and other forms of violence are brought up in our conversations. Listener discretion is advised. Today's truth. There are ways that people resist sexual assault other than screaming for help or physically fighting back. It's very common for someone to freeze or to check out when they are being assaulted, especially if the perpetrator is someone that they know. These are coping strategies that help a victim to survive and are actually different ways of resisting. Sometimes fighting back can, be, can put the victim in more danger. Um, so understanding that the fighting back isn't always physically fighting back and identifying whatever the survivor did in that moment um, was a form of resistance and they did what they needed in that moment to survive. Yeah, I think this myth kind of goes along with what we spoke about in a previous episode, the um, Italian ruling that the because the woman was wearing tight jeans, it must have been consensual because there's no way that um, the perpetrator could have taken them off or something like that. And it just reinforces that someone can resist in many many different ways it doesn't have to be that clawing at the person's face or the kicking the punching the screaming um the the fight flight or freeze is very much present in um issues of assault yeah um and understanding that that freeze portion is is very common like according to the neurobiology of what happens to the brain during an assault the individual will always freeze to assess the situation If the brain assesses and decides it's too dangerous to resist the assault, the body freezes further to what's called something, um, what's called tonic immobility. And this is an involuntary response due to the brain's perception that escape is not possible. And I think understanding this piece, that it is not a choice, your brain is going into, it's taking control, and it's telling you, okay, like fighting back is going to be worse, so we're just going to cut out. And what you did or what someone that you know did or whoever you're supporting did in that moment was brain's decision of what it needed to do to make it through. And sometimes this freeze presents as almost a blackout stage. And we see it in trauma victims where they have troubles piecing together exactly what happened, even if they weren't under the influence at all. Um, and it's just their brain's way of protecting them, of almost erasing what had happened to them, Mm -hmm. which can be pretty frustrating for um, police or the legal system 
because they're like, well, you can't tell me what happened. And they're like, well, I know X, Y, and Z happened, but I don't know where A, B, C, and D went. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, what is it? It's called flashbulb or something like that memory. So when you're in, during an assault or you're in a situation where you think that, um, your life is in danger, your brain only really pays attention to what it needs to in order to survive. So going back to that survival instinct. And so your brain only, it's not paying attention to the extra pieces. It's not paying attention to the time or how things are um, coming together. It's paying attention to the color of your assaulter's shirt because that's how you know he's coming. It's paying attention to the smells, the very basic things um, that it thinks it needs to pay attention to. And then when you try and look back and recall that, your brain just didn't encode it the same way. You don't have memories. And that's very normal. Um, and so again, it's not your fault that you don't remember. It's not that you did something. It is just your brain wasn't paying attention to those extra pieces. Yeah, very much in a survival state. Uh, there's a great little booklet from the Calgary uh, Women's Emergency Shelter called Honoring Resistance. Um, it very much deals with domestic violence uh, in terms of resistance, but some great facts were presented in this booklet. Um, and so they said that whenever people are badly treated, they always resist. Um, and so it's different ways of resistance that show up. So people will stand up and not comply with and try to stop or prevent violence, disrespect, or oppression. People tend not to notice that the victim resists abuse. So abuse can be very dangerous, so usually victims resist in ways that are not obvious. Perpetrators of violence know that victims will resist, so they make plans to stop the victims from resisting. So uh, an example is some women will resist their husband's abuse by leaving the house. Knowing this, some men will try to stop this resistance by taking shoes, money, bank cards, and car keys. Others might pull the phone out of the wall to prevent their wives from calling for help. Mm-hmm. And then the last point, super important, is that violent and abusive behavior is always done deliberately. So the fact that perpetrators make plans to stop victims from resisting indicates that their abuse is deliberate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that further goes into um, that, like, fighting back probably isn't, physically fighting back probably isn't the smartest idea for you in that moment. So those little acts of resistance, little, I'm going to say that's not quite the right word, but those acts of resistance, um, such as, like, reasoning, struggling, remaining motionless, quiet, or quiet, pleading, bargaining, numbing out emotionally, dissociating mentally, crying. All those things are also resistance. It's if you just lay there motionless during a sexual assault, you're not engaging. You're not consenting. You're not um, allowing them to do this to your body. Um, Or maybe you go the other way and your body tells you to engage because that's what's going to make it the least painful for you. Those are all acts of resistance. It's not always possible to push the perpetrator off of you or um, to fight your way out of a domestic dispute. But it is possible for you to... What would be another example? When they're yelling at you, just numb out emotionally. Stare them in the face and not give them any reaction. Yeah, it also says that um, imagining a better life may also be a way that victims uh, resist abuse. 
Totally. And that's just that like dissociation or not being present with what's happening to you because your power is being taken away. Yeah. Like whether it's the, the domestic dispute, so it's physical or emotional or verbal or doing a sexual assault, you can lie there or stand there and be thinking about what you're making for dinner tomorrow or where you would live. And that's a way of protecting yourself. You're not present emotionally or cognitively or mentally when it's happening to you. You're, you you've fought yourself out in that own way, in your own way. Um, I think something else with this myth is that even if someone has attended self-defense classes or has their whistle or their plan, in the moment, your body may not respond the way that your mind is prepared for. Exactly. Yeah, and if you have that training, maybe you choose to fight back to a, a point because you know how to maneuver out. Or again, like you're saying, you don't because you see there's no exit. And you're like, I took all these classes. Why couldn't I fight back? But when you're in it and this large individual standing in front of you and you're in a corner... Your brain might say, like, it's going to hurt more or be more detrimental for you to try and fight. This person is giving you no exit and they are physically stronger than you. So you freeze. And that's okay. Any response to abuse is a normal response to an abnormal situation. So there's no rhyme or reason. There's no, like, oh, so-and-so did this, so I should do this. It is just whatever your body decides for you in that moment based on your experience, uh, your environment, your, uh, all these different elements that are going to vary from person to person. Yeah, and this is where victim blaming can absolutely be shut down. The asking of, why didn't you fight back? Why didn't you use your skills? Why, 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 why? And it's just the victim experienced something so traumatic and this was their response and that was the correct response for them at the time. So mm -hmm. let's just shut down the, why didn't you fight back? Exactly. I love the way you said that. That was the correct response for them at the time. And I hope that we get to a place where um, any reporting that's done is that what the victim says and what they did is just accepted as that. Exactly. Um, we, we just, I think, Terry, you took the National Sexual Assault Conference online mm -hmm. as well, and I was just listening to one of the plenaries. Um, I can't remember exactly what it was called, but I will put it in the show notes. But they were talking about how would it, the violence become different? How would perpetrators choose to react? How would abuse um, be perpetrated? If we knew that all reports would be taken seriously, if we knew that any action that is abuse or assault in this sense, the perpetrator would be held accountable. Would we still have the rates of assault that we do? I don't know. But I think it's that, again, that victim blaming and that not understanding trauma reactions and the nature of abuse like this that can uh, um, contribute to the higher assault rates. Yeah, I think like all of those what ifs would lead to that culture of consent that we're mm -hmm. searching for because we know that it just wouldn't be acceptable anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't be acceptable. It would not be accepted. Yeah. And we're still kind of at a place where it's, oh, that's just what they do. 
Yeah. And I, my hope is that we get to that culture of consent. Absolutely. Um, so that was all of our truths that we went through. Yeah. Eight truths dispelling the myths around sexual assault. Yeah. No, um, if you have any input as to what you liked, what you didn't, what you'd want to hear next time, we hope to do another season in the future, shoot us an email, um, give us a call. Our, our contact is on the website or it'll be in the show notes. All of our references will be in there too. And thanks for listening. Please let us know what you think of this episode in the comments and what you'd like to be featured in future seasons. Remember to like and subscribe to be notified of future episodes. And if you like what we're doing, please share our podcast. You can find us at harmonyproject.ca or send us an email at yps at ywcabanff.ca. The Harmony Project's diverse stakeholders, through expertise and experience, are working together to end sexualized violence in the Bow Valley. The Harmony Project is funded by the Ministry of Community and Social Services on behalf of the Government of Alberta.